0: This episode is brought to you in part by our Daily Bread Ministries. Experience the joy and freedom that comes from a faith that perseveres. Check out Unshakable Moxie, growing a resilient faith at unshakablemoxie.com from our Daily Bread Ministries. Visit unshakablemoxie.com.
1: ali Honey, welcome to Viral Jesus.
2: It was women who first proclaimed the risenness of Christ our Lord. So women were very important, and women were important even in the book of Luke. You have Luke and Acts, that it's women that are giving the testimony. It's Elizabeth, it's Mary that are giving the testimony.
1: From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've. Impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Hello, friend. It is time for part two of our three-part series, Listening to Black Creators. I have had so many of you reach out about last week's episode and how great K.A. Ellis was, and I knew you'd love her. I told you that you would love her. Go back and listen to part one if you missed it before you jump into today's conversation. Before we go any further, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast, write us a review, or rate the episode, share it with a friend. That's how we make Jesus go viral. But before we get to our conversation with Allie Henny, are you ready for Social Toolkit? This is where we discover tips and best practices for entering the chat. Since it's Black History Month, I wanted to do a social toolkit all by myself. <laughs> because this week and next week, I just want to share some of the research on the social media industry and a few of the challenges that are facing specifically black creators in this space. So today I just wanna focus on one of the biggest challenges for black creators and that is erasure. So let's just look at a famous example like the renegade dance that went massively viral on TikTok with Charlie D'Amelio. Now, D'Amelio is, is, she's talented, okay? And the video blows up and she instantly amasses millions of followers. And as people recreated the dance, they would go back and tag Charlie as the dance's creator of The Renegade. But there is only one problem with this story <laughs> Charlie didn't create the dance, a 14 year old from Atlanta did. Her name is Jalea Harmon. And Charlie, who is white, recreated the dance by the Black creator, Jalea, but didn't give her any credit, even after it goes massively viral. And it wasn't until investigative journalist Taylor Lorenz, who we have had on this show, talked about this on Twitter and talked about Jalea that anyone even knew what had happened This happens all the time to black creators, from pay discrepancies in the field to getting no credit on their trends that they start, or just getting credit so much later. They are constantly dealing with the same systemic inequalities that exist offline. And we just bring them into the online space. So something I wanna challenge you to do if you are doing a trend is to give credit to the original source to the best of your ability. Don't partake in the erasure of black creators getting credit for their work. I believe that as Christians, this is just one small way we can enter the chat thoughtfully. I hope that you can add that simple tool, give credit to where it's due, friend, to your social toolkit. Today, we sit down with Allie Henney. Allie Henney is a writer, speaker, advocate, minister, and vice president of The Witness, a Black Christian collective, an organization committed to encouraging, engaging, and empowering Black Christians toward liberation from racism. She completed her MDiv from Fuller Seminary with an emphasis in race cultural identity, and reconciliation, and she hopes to lead a church someday. Allie has been leading conversations about race on her social media and blog, the armchair commentary, since 2014, and her posts reach millions each month. She is a proud Chicago Southsider. Her latest book is called I Won't Shut Up. Here is my conversation with Allie Henney. So, I love opening the show by doing some, you know, digging online and just seeing what I can find out about the person before I get to see them face to face or, you know, screen to screen here. For you, I pulled up something that you posted on Instagram. I believe it's an excerpt from I Won't Shut Up. It says this From a very young age, we are socialized to be quiet and to make ourselves smaller because whenever we speak up, There are consequences. Can you tell us a little bit more about that statement?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that women in particular, Mm -hmm. but Black women especially, Mm -hmm. there's this idea that, like, we have to be quiet, you know, we have to be soft spoken and, and all these other types of things. And so then I think that whenever it comes to experiencing injustice, then. The idea of being loud, the idea mm. of pushing back, of being assertive, of saying no, I am not okay with this. So, like, it, it doesn't even just have to be racism. It could be anything. It could be it can be experiencing uh, sexual harassment. It can be any type of situation um, where our where our bodies, where our dignities, where our minds, our spirits, our souls are being violated. We are socialized to just sort of take those things quietly and to take those things sitting down even in a way. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is something in society that's difficult. And so my book, part of the ethos behind I Won't Shut Up is uh, to challenge that.
1: I want to like dig into that because I think you're absolutely right that this is something that starts in childhood. And then nobody ever really says, okay, you're an adult now. Now you get to have this agency. Like, nobody necessarily teaches us how to stand up for ourselves or how to speak back when things are getting uncomfortable. And I think that it's good that we're starting to have more and more conversations like this. But what do you think about that? How there's like, you go through all of your life kind of in childhood and primary school and secondary school where people are like, don't talk out of turn, follow the rules, be subordinate. And then we get older and all of a sudden those rules don't necessarily always apply. But there's no class on how to take and develop your own social agency.
2: Well, you know, I think that that's by design. I think Mm. that the lack of social agency that women are socialized into, like again, in general, and black Mm. women, you know, we tend to be a bit more vocal. Our culture allows a little bit more room for being vocal and stuff. But there is an aspect even within our own culture and even among our own selves where women who are vocal are penalized for being vocal whenever it isn't seen as necessarily benefiting the collective. There's a little bit more freedom within black culture for. Black women. But then whenever you get into the majority culture and get into majority culture spaces, you learn really quickly, you can't be vocal. And so for me, a lot of my socialization, growing up in a Black family, but then being socialized in a small, predominantly white rural town where... I could be verbal and vocal at home to an extent. And there still is that socialization of like, oh, you know, don't talk back, don't this, don't, don't that, and the other right, thing. But right. then, you know, I go into majority culture spaces. And then all of a sudden, like what felt like you know, repression to me in home spaces, all of a sudden people are like, like, why are you talking so much? Why are you so verbal? Why are you so whatever? But I think mm. that, but all that to say that, that to go back to my initial statement, I think that that's by design. That women, again, in general, but then, but then black women, mm. women of color in particular, were socialized to have our voices be minimized, to have our voices be seen as Mm non-authoritative, as non-essential, as not really uh, carrying a lot of weight or needing to be added to a conversation or whatever. I think that it's more than just, oh, you know, the transition from childhood into adulthood and all of a sudden, you know, we don't know how to talk. Because notice that men don't have that problem. Men don't have the problem of, Mm. oh, you know, I was young and and I had to learn kind of how to speak up and how to assert myself or whatever. Men, especially white men, they ain't ain't got that problem. They come out ready to take up space, willing to take up space, willing to Mm. share their thoughts, their opinions anything that comes to their mind whether it is solicited or unsolicited but women sort of have that i've got to hang back should i say this should i and so we have a lot more filters and a lot more guardrails whenever it comes to to speaking up and like i said i think that that is by design because i think our silence or our fear to speak out it benefits it's a status quo that often seeks to minimize those voices
1: Okay. So yes, we have like the sexism dynamic and the racial component. And then I do think that Christianity adds another layer to this that maybe people in secular culture um, wouldn't relate to as much because Christianity really, I think uniquely (laughs) often teaches us that like, especially as it comes to like negative emotions, that Mm -hmm. vocalizing those are bad, right? Or you are now unfaithful if you vocalize something that's not positive? What do you think about that intersection?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of people's readings of scriptures, particularly whenever you get into New Testament passages, whenever you get into passages and stuff in Paul's writings, um, there's this reading um i would even perhaps even characterize it in some ways as a misreading of mm-hmm. paul where we're talking different layers of culture we're talking different layers of praxis that this is what this person practices. So, you know, like Paul says, I suffer a woman not to teach, yet we see in the book of Acts, we got Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is like the first name. We got even in the book of Romans where Paul references Junia, who was an apostle. And so there's some things that I won't get into um, the different Ideas, because either I suffer a woman not to teach a second a second Timothy, and we can get into issues of authorship and and pseudepigrapha and all that type of stuff. So I won't bore your audience with those conversations. But I think that often people take the scripture and they take a few statements that are culturally coded and culturally mm. loaded, and it's like you're reading somebody's mail. We right. have like you know this group of letters that survived and there's some of the like so second corinthians might even be multiple letters kind of strung together in like a paul's greatest hits sort of thing mm-hmm. so my point in saying that is that you have people's mail and you have one side Of the conversation. And yes, we can make assumptions about what the other side of the conversation might have been and the questions that might have been asked and the assumptions that might have taken place within that. But you're reading somebody's mail and it doesn't make, and I'm saying that. And I'm not saying that to say, well, it makes it less authoritative. It makes it less, you know, inspired. It makes it less, I'm not getting into that. I'm simply saying that it's like if we had, you know, an email conversation Yeah. and you only had my side of the email conversation and we're getting into a deep conversation and I'm unpacking some things for you, but then maybe we had, you know, a hundred emails going back and forth, but you only have yeah. one of those emails that survives. You have no idea what the, what yes. the context of that Conversation was or the context of a specific comment was. Um, we like again, mm-hmm, we can we can mm-hmm. do literary analysis, we can give give it our best guess, but at the end of the day, we simply do not know definitively. And so I think that whenever it comes to silencing women, whenever it comes to silencing women's voices, I think that the church has made a grave mistake in saying, well, you know, based on this cultural practice, these things, these scriptures that, again, are relevant to our lives, you know, and is the living and active Word of God. And at the same time, we have mm. to understand it has a culture, it has a context. And I yes. think that we have made a grave mistake over time to not also pay attention to the traditions at the time and to see, well, you know, there there was a point whenever things changed because you had yes. women who were active. It was women mm-hmm. who, first Proclaimed the risenness of Christ our Lord, so women were very important, and women were important even in the Book of Luke. You have Luke and Acts that it's women that are giving the testimony. It's Elizabeth, mm-hmm. it's Mary mm-hmm. that are giving the testimony. In fact, there's some tradition um, that has Elizabeth yes, giving yes. the Magnificat to Mary, which I think is really is really interesting. The, what we accept is that that there was probably just a, a translation issue. And so some early texts attributed it to Elizabeth, um, but most of the textual tradition attributes the Magnificat to Mary. But I think it's a very interesting reading where we have Elizabeth saying these things to Mary about the Lord versus Mary saying these things about uh, the—there's different implications for who's saying what to whom and why in that. But you have Luke having these moments where he's showing Jesus with women— he, mm-hmm. we, we see throughout the accounts of Jesus's resurrection where it's women mm-hmm. who are giving the testimony. It's women who weren't afraid. While the, while the men was, was hemmed up and locked up, afraid, scared about what was going to happen after Jesus was crucified, it was the women who were not afraid and who went to the tomb and who saw that Christ was risen. So all of that to save them. It serves, it serves a certain narrative, and I think that it served certain people's desires to exclude women. And so we have then where at some point the tradition changed, and it was probably fairly early on, but tradition changed, practice changed. And so then we have this suppression of women, um, we have the suppression of mm-hmm. our voices, and then from that, in Christian culture, we have this culture within um, certain facets of Christianity where women are the most involved. You know, I, I, I come from a Black Church, and it was something that I always found difficult. And I'm in a Black Church um, now, and it's something that that is difficult. In this, in I, I'm in a denomination that ordains and affirms women in ministry, and I'm, I'm in the ordination process, but just the, the culture even within the black church is mm. it's men that are that are the preachers it's men that are the ones that are you know the deacons and the this and that and the fourth but women are doing all the work mm. in the church and women you know it might be you might have a church of 100 people and you know 85 to 95 of those people are women yeah but then the men are the ones that get the power, and that's something that often happens, and often get paid, and, and are the ones that get paid. Yes, and so then, and so then, you know, you get into um, even more evangelical contexts and stuff like that, and it's a very similar culture. But then, something that I've noticed in evangelical congregations that, that I um, have been adjacent to, or things that I've been a part of. There's this other kind of cultural expectation of women, of being behind the scenes, of of being silent, of being quiet, of, you know, you can lead, you can only lead other women. So you have powerful woman Mm -hmm. leaders who, you know, what they, the extent of their ministry is... Women's ministry, heaven forfend, she get up on a Sunday that's not Mother's Day or not some other designated Women's Day, and stand up and preach or teach or instruct or whatever. Then everybody's like, "Oh no, no, like that's 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 outside." And even if even all my church upbringing has been quote unquote egalitarian context, and you see this, you see this type of culture even in in ministries that affirm women. Yes, you still often will see this type this type of culture. And like I said before. I think that some of that is by yes. design. And 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 I want to be careful to say that, you know, I don't think that everybody out here is just like, well, you we just want to impress women. We just want to like, I don't I don't <laughs> think that everybody necessarily is out here trying to do this, but I think that there's that there is just a distinct culture that exists that certain people benefit from. And so if you benefit yeah. from it, it's gonna be very hard for you to wanna to change it. And so men benefit. From having women be the ones paying the tithes and the offerings, they're the ones who are doing all the volunteer work, they're the ones who are setting up everything and tearing everything down, they're the ones who are cooking, Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are cleaning, men benefit from that. So who wants to change that? I mean, like, you know, I, I hate to clean. I don't like cleaning. So like I, like sometimes, you know, I can get into a mode and be like, okay, yes, I can find zen with it. And it's like, and, right. and it becomes kind of like something I can kind of make into a game in my brain, whatever. That's what I have to do too. This is me serving you, Lord. I'm going to clean this house. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to clean, but like, but like, you know, I don't like, I don't like to clean the toilet. There's some things that I like to do. So I actually do like folding laundry. Um, there's something about folding the laundry that does feel peaceful to me. I like doing that. I like organizing and decluttering stuff, but I don't like to clean the toilets. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, my husband generally is the one. I, now, I did get like one of them little uh, Lysol things that's got like the little long handle that I'll put the little joint on and and do that part of it um, and clean that part of it up. But like, if it gets into like the deep cleaning, that's that's not me. That that's not my ministry. That's my <laughs> husband's ministry. That is not my ministry. But like, it, but, but think about it. It, it benefits me not to clean the toilet because I'm gro- I'm <laughs> grossed out by it. I'm grossed out by anything with the bathroom. I am grossed out by that. So it benefits me not to do that. And so I think that really what's, what's happened here is men in ministry see, well, certain things benefit them. It's not that God created women to be better cooks, at this point, my right. husband's a better cook than I am. Now I I started out a better cook than him, but then child, I gave that white boy some seasonings, and like he can <laughs> he can cook like he think he he think he's Gordon Ramsay or something. There's not any of this that people kind of.
1: Try and to- by the way, most of the head chefs in this country are men, which I think is so fascinating that we always think oh women do the cooking, and yet.
2: Head yeah, yeah. Why Why are most of the Michelin star <laughs> people men? So that, th- there are certain things that I don't do because, again, it's not my ministry, but it benefits me not to do those things. So I think that for men in the church, there are certain things that culturally— yeah they weren't expected to do, and it benefited them not to do it. And then also the things that they quote unquote are able to do, Mm. those are the things that get the most shine, that get the most press, that get the most money, that get the ordinations, that get the positions, that get the whatever. And so then those are the things that benefit men. So again, why would you stop doing something? Why would you challenge something? That benefits you, and I'll even go and and to make it maybe a little bit I don't want to say softer, but maybe maybe yeah. make it a little bit more understandable for some people is that that doesn't necessarily have to be nefarious. It, it can just be there's a system that benefits me, and so I don't realize yes. that it doesn't benefit other people the same way. So right. like you know my kids they they see like Dad's the one that cleans the toilet, Dad's the one that that does the cooking, Dad's the one that does mm-hmm. several other things they they don't realize so so you know they they've grown up like i guess you know, even just as parents there are things that my kids don't have to do right now my kids are not cleaning toilets but they're getting to toilet cleaning age hallelujah um, but my 9 year old just going to be 10 she just started doing dishes and that we have we've, we've given her that chore but there's but, but up until that point you know, my youngest who's who's uh, going to be 7 in a few days she she hasn't had to worry about doing the dishes she can do the dishes for fun it, the system that we mm-hmm. have in our home it benefits her now if there comes to be a point when that system it, it is different for my for my oldest that the system has stopped benefiting her because now she has to be the one to do the work that nobody nobody, nobody wants to load the dishwasher right. but she's she she's the one that that you know her her parents is like oh we don't like to do this task here you go 9 year old you can do that task and so anyway so i think that sometimes men don't recognize that there's a system out there that benefits them, and so it's not even that they're trying to be malicious, that they're trying to do anything mm. that they're trying to be like, "Oh, women can't do this." It's just straight up it it benefits me. so I don't see the work that women have to do to get to where I'm at. That's even in settings where you know women can can minister and do all the same things as men. Women have to work harder to get to that place. But anyways, all that to say that I think there's a unique thing within Christian culture that you just don't see other places. Whenever I'm around friends who, um, you know, that, that, that they're not churchy, they don't, they're not, you know, inculcated into church culture. Um, I've never had to deal with, okay, well, Mm -hmm. the men and the women, we're going to separate and the women are going to talk about, you know, the things that women talk about, which, which I mean, no, no tea, no shade. Just some of the stuff that women would want to talk about would be stuff that I'm like, I don't want to talk about. Like, Like, that's, that's not like, that's not my joint. The things right. that the men are talking about, or the things, and I'm like, yeah, well, that conversation, <laughs> that conversation is interesting. Let me go, let me go sit over here. And it sometimes upset the status quo. Well, among my friends that you know aren't churchy, aren't socialized in the Christian culture. Those things don't really exist in the same way. There's not like the, there aren't certain social expectations, right? So like there's not a social expectation that like women are gonna are gonna prepare the meal or the women are gonna clean up the meal or whatever. There's not there's not that expectation. There's not that expectation that you know we're gonna separate and the women are gonna go someplace and and talk and the men are gonna go someplace. like mm. there's just there's just not those expectations. So I think that there's some unique things um, even within Christian culture that that creates that scenario for women.
0: Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
1: Scott McKnight in The Blue Parakeet, he talks about how You can either make your theology off of a handful of verses, right, which what you talk about have context, or he says you can go through the Bible and actually ask yourself, Mm. what did women actually do? And he says, if you start writing down what women actually do in the Bible and you can choose to build your theology Mm. from there, you would have a very different understanding of how God sees women, how Paul, I think, even works with women, and the Bible sees women. In your book, which, by the way, is called I Won't Shut Up, just tell us really quickly, why did you write this book? Why was this such an important need for you?
2: Yeah, you know, I wanted um, to put something out there in the world that um, really just kind of me defining myself for the world, but then also with the hopes that it would inspire other people to define themselves, that they would find themselves in my story. So whether that Mm. is, you know, other, other Black women, other people of color, people from other historically excluded groups, that they would be able to find themselves in, in the stories that that I tell in the in the different scenarios um, that I paint in the book, but then also the idea that people of privilege, that people from dominant majority cultures, um, particularly here in the United States, but also worldwide, would also see themselves in the story. And they might not necessarily Identify with me, mm. and I hope that you know white folks that that read my book don't just automatically be like, "Oh, Allie's the protagonist, so of course I'm going to identify with her." And there might be intersections of your identity that do that you can say, you know, you're like I'm autistic, I'm am di- disabled, whatever that you can say. Like there are some commonalities, even if it's not the same as the black experience, there are some commonalities here that I can hold on to. Um, but I mm. also hope that white folks will look and and really anybody that has any. Type of privilege in society will also see themselves in the people in the book that caused conflict and that did harm, mm. and that they would see themselves in that part of the story, too, and that they would see where they can change and see how they can live and move and have their being differently in the world that makes room and makes space for the rest of us.
1: In your book, you say, we might not be able to control our circumstances, but we can let our experiences empower us to recognize our part in making our world better. What do we do if somebody's listening right now and they say, I just, I feel so out of control of my own life or the situation that I'm in? How would you advise them to start moving
2: forward? Yeah, you know, there's so many circumstances that we have that sometimes things, there's mm-hmm. nothing we can do. You know, we it would be very mm-hmm. hard to change a job situation, be very hard to change a living mm-hmm. situation. There's, there's certain things um, that just, those things would be very hard to change. And so I think that um people-
1: Actually, pause. Allie, I just have to say, the fact that you even just said that. I think is so important because sometimes I sit down with people who are like, you can just, you can be whatever you want to be. And I do think that's a position of privilege mm-hmm. that you can even say, because for the average person, you cannot just change your job. So I'm just so glad I'm having a conversation with somebody who would say that to people who are living real lives in real situations and real experiences.
2: Yeah, there's just there are some things you can't change. There and, and I say that because there are so many times that people in my life have said to me, well, why didn't you just move? Why did you live there? Why did you why did you keep doing this? And it's like, well, I mean, you know, where else am I going to, like, Like I did, I did end up moving away from a place that I live where I experienced a lot of stuff. I did end up moving, but that was, like, a decision. That was, like, I'm going to move, you know, I'm, I'm living in Springfield, Missouri. I'm close to my family. I'm close to to all this and that. I'm close to, you know, my kids, to, you know, three out of the four of my, of my kids' grandparents. And I'm going to move mm-hmm. to Chicago. Um, That's, wow. you know. 10 hours away, which is, was a lot closer. I used to live in the DC area. So that was, that's a lot closer. That was, you know, 24 hours away. And so I recognize that, you know, there are some things that you just simply cannot change about your circumstance. That job just, you can't easily be like, okay, hey, I'm going to quit. I'm going to find new jobs in this economy. Now, Mm -hmm. some people, you know, yes, jobs are are good and people are able to, are able to do stuff. But sometimes like, you know, that, that stepping out and like you're stepping out from a paycheck, you're stepping out from your life. That's just, that's just hard to do. So for me, it's, it's about mm-hmm. finding ways to survive, finding pockets of happiness where you're at and mm-hmm. making – and sometimes it might be making a plan to get out, um, making a plan. And, the, and sometimes there's courage that you have to have to be able to get out of a bad situation, to be able to say there's stocks that you, that you might have to take, things that you might, mm-hmm. have, to, you might have to do, like a, a, a cost-benefit analysis and decide what is staying costing me? Mm-hmm. I might have these benefits but what is the cost? Yeah. And so I think that that you're telling people to count the cost of remaining in certain places that just aren't bringing you life but then also holding mm-hmm. that intention with sometimes our life circumstances it's not easy to change. So if I cannot change my my life circumstances yeah. what is it what resources can I pull in within myself? To be able to start to name the things that are hurting, that are being able to start to mm. name the things that are harming, and to be able to start changing the situation. You might not be able to exit, but maybe you can maybe you can speak up at that staff meeting and be like, mm. you know, hey, this mm. this policy." It's kind of racist. Maybe you mm. can have that hard critical conversation with the woman at your work that that insists on every single time you change your hair, she insists on putting her hands in your hair. Maybe you can have that hard conversation and be like, uh, eh, maybe don't do that. Maybe you can have that hard conversation and t- with HR and say, your, you know, your non-discrimination policy isn't isn't good enough. Like it's and so maybe some sometimes you have to have difficult. Conversations you have to take, you have to take a stand. And so, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is to help people be able to find their voice because Love sometimes that. you're not able to move, you're not able to change the situation, but you're able to speak. And speak doesn't have to be some people. I understand that there are some people who are non speaking, like they're, they are not able to speak. But speaking to me is not just using your, your vocal cords. It is using whatever whatever language and communication abilities that you have to, to, to communicate. This situation ain't it. This ain't, this ain't it. This ain't the business. And encouraging and pushing mm-hmm. back and pushing people to do right by you. Sometimes you don't always got to leave. Sometimes you got to have people do right by you.
1: Allie Honey is the author of I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. Allie, our show is called Viral Jesus. What do you think it means to be a Christian when we are online? Oh, yeah. You know, I I
2: really think that it's important for Christians online um, to speak the truth. To tell the truth, Mm. to tell the truth about what you know and who you know God is. And it doesn't have to be, you know, preaching. It doesn't have to be how many times you say Jesus or Lord or God or, you know, whatever, however you address the divine. It It doesn't have to be that. But Jesus says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And I'm a firm believer mm-hmm. in that, and so I'm a firm believer that as Christians, the one of the most powerful tools that we have in our arsenal is the truth. Wow. If you are telling the truth now, sometimes telling the truth can be costly. Sometimes telling the truth is maybe not always the most popular thing. If you can speak mm-hmm. what you know, what you know to be true, and speak that with con- with conviction, and then you know, I'm just going to say it: some things that we might think that we know are true might not be true and we might have to learn and adjust and and whatever um but in general i think that you know if we stand on the side of people who are oppressed if we stand on the side of people who are being harmed if we stand on the side of what jesus terms the quote unquote least of these i think that you know most of the time we're going to be standing with jesus we might not be standing with the church We might not be standing with our denomination. We might not be standing with our favorite preacher. But if we choose to tell the truth and to speak to the people who are the most marginalized, we most of the time are going to be standing with Jesus.
1: Allie Henney is the author of I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. You can get this wherever books are sold. Allie, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. So what can we learn from my conversation with Allie Henney? Number one, Allie says that when it comes to experiencing injustice, the idea of being loud or of pushing back or just saying, I'm not okay with this, we are often socialized to do that part quietly. Allie wants us to challenge that instinct. Number two, Ali says that while in general, black culture tends to make more room for an individual to be vocal against authority, there are times and spaces where even within that culture, you get penalized for speaking out. And, and when she talks about this, she is specifically talking about women. She says women often have to navigate the tension of how and where to share their experiences. Her premise is that women in general, but especially black women, are constantly navigating the challenge of how do I, or when do I give myself permission to say this out loud? Am I able to assert my truth here? Number three, Scripture is reading someone's mail, especially as we're dealing with letters like we read from Paul. We are reading one side of the conversation. It requires us to make a lot of assumptions about what is taking place that would require Paul to write the response that now we are reading. Friend, this is why I'm a big believer in approaching scripture with so much cultural humility. I am telling you, scripture is one of those things where the more you learn, the more you learn about the context or the culture or the other writings that are non-biblical writings but that are happening at the exact same time, the more we learn about those things, the more humble we should be in approaching the scripture that we read today. Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson-Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week, we will do part three of our three-part series, Listening to Black Creators. I am not going to tell you who is joining me because it is going to shock you in the best way. I have a new social media class that's doing the social media for Viral Jesus. And when they saw the guest list, they were like, oh my, they were shrieking. Oh my goodness, they're gonna be on the show. Yes, friend. So there's gonna be a surprise coming next week. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a Viral Jesus guest talks. And you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus.